Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Excuse Me History, the Gettysburg Campaign, and this is basically the final episode of the the history of the campaign itself. We'll wrap that up in today's episode, and I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, Civil War did not end at the Gettysburg Campaign, so we'll talk about exactly what transpired in the final days of the military operation. Though I do have a few more episodes planned out in the future where I'll talk more about some kind of other Gettysburg-related things, but not exactly about the battle or the rest of the campaign. And this is your reminder to like the Excuse Me History Facebook page for updates about the show, as well as supplemental information like maps. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, I always forget to mention this, but you can email me at excusemehistory at gmail.com. Also, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, you should do that. And if it is an option, give the podcast a five-star rating, if you feel that's appropriate. If you don't give me five stars, I'll be a little upset. Not too upset, but a little bit. But doing that kind of stuff actually does help the podcast, and it will uh, reach more listeners that way. So if you enjoy it, make sure others know about it. All right, folks, without further ado, let's start the show. The entire week had passed since the Battle of Gettysburg concluded, but both the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia and the Union Army of the Potomac remained in Maryland. This was the result of heavy rains that persisted in the days following the battle and the destruction of the Confederate Army's pontoon bridge at Falling Waters. General George Meade had taken his time pursuing the rebels. Lee's army was now entrenched in a series of defensive earthworks that stretched nine miles. By the morning of the 11th, Meade's army was within striking distance. The question now was not could they attack, but would they? When Lee's engineers were close to completion on work on the Downsville line, they began to gather materials and make plans for the construction of a new pontoon bridge. Pioneers spread out in the area of Williamsport in search of wood. Most of the materials were torn off buildings or stolen from lumber yards. In one instance, a lumberyard worker protested this theft, and Private John O'Castler of the 33rd Virginia told him to quote, Charge it to Jeff Davis and company, unquote. The pontoons were put together by the canal basin at Williamsport. Typically, a Civil War pontoon is not much more than a small boat or a large canoe. Once each pontoon was finished, it was floated down the river to Falling Waters, where they were lashed together. Engineers and pioneers began to link the pontoons from both sides of the river and lay the bridge deck upon them. As the Confederate engineers and pioneers worked on the project, the Federal Army approached Downsville and Funkstown. By the end of the day, they were within two miles of the Confederate defensive line. One bit of luck that went Lee's way on the 11th was that the rains had finally stopped. Even with the second pontoon bridge, some troops would still need to ford the river at Williamsport. A day or two more of dry weather could be all they'd need to initiate the retreat. Work on the pontoons was completed on the 12th. That day, Lee took time again to write to his wife, quote, the consequences of war are horrid enough at best, surrounded by all the ameliorations of civilization and Christianity. I am very sorry for the injuries done the family at Hickory Hill, and particularly that our dear old Uncle Williams, in his 80th year, should be subjected to such treatment. But we cannot help it and must endure it. You will, however, learn before this reaches you that our success at Gettysburg was not so great as reported. In fact, that we failed to drive the enemy from his position, and that our army withdrew to the Potomac. 
Had the river not unexpectedly risen, all would have been well with us, but God in his all-wise providence willed otherwise, and our communications have been interrupted and almost cut off. The waters have subsided to about four feet, and if they continue by tomorrow, I hope our communications will be open. I trust that a merciful God, our only hope and refuge, will not desert us in this hour of need, and will deliver us by his almighty hand, that the whole world may recognize his power and all hearts be lifted up in adoration and praise of his unbounded loving kindness. We must, however, submit to his almighty will, whatever it may be. May God guide and protect us all as my constant prayer." Unquote. In this letter, we see Lee opening up a bit to his wife about the loss at Gettysburg. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the news of the battle was hard to come by south of the Potomac, and many rumors of a great victory floated around, but Lee quashed this notion. Confederate pioneers and black laborers continued making improvements to the earthworks as the Union 11th Corps crossed Antietam Creek at Funkstown and marched up the National Road toward Hagerstown. General Adelbert Ames led his brigade, supported by cavalry, against a mix of Confederate infantry, cavalry, and sharpshooters. Sergeant James M. Matthews of Burdan's 2nd U.S. Sharpshooters wrote about the action on the 12th in his diary, quote, We are now near Jones Crossroads. One of A.P. Hill scouts was captured today, so it seems we're fighting as usual against his command. There are two lines of battle in our front, and we move as they move. Prisoners are being captured, but no general engagement has commenced. Meade is feeling along, and the enemy does not seem to be inclined to fight. We have all kinds of reports as regards the enemy's means of crossing the Potomac. It is said they are tearing down houses for the material to construct bridges, etc. As the Yankees advance into Hagerstown proper, they are harassed by sharpshooters who took cover in buildings and alleyways. Captain James Harvey Kidd of the Michigan Cavalry Brigade remembered that, quote, The bullets from their guns had a peculiar sound, something like the buzz of a bumblebee, and the troopers' horses would stop, prick up their ears, and gaze in the direction whence the hum of those invisible messengers could be heard. But after a couple of hours of intense skirmishing, Ames' brigade and the cavalry drove the rebels out of Hagerstown, taking many prisoners along the way. The rest of the Union Army, including Neal's Light Division and Baldy Smith's militia, moved into a position parallel to the Confederate Army. Howard's 11th Corps held the far right of the Union line on the western side of Antietam Creek, opposite Funkstown. On Howard's left was Newton's 1st Corps, then Sedgwick's 6th, Sykes's 5th, Hayes' 2nd, and Slocum's 12th. The 3rd Corps and the militia were held in reserve. As the army moved into position, they made observations of the rebel lines. Colonel Pinnock Huey, whose cavalry brigade was engaged near Jones's crossroads, reported, quote, I have driven them from their position on the left of the road. They have a long line of rifle pits just back of the college covering the ground in that vicinity, unquote. More intelligence came into Army headquarters, this time from General John Buford, who relayed this, quote, I have information, confirming the information, that the enemy is not crossing the river. Nothing but sick and wounded go over. At Williamsport, there is but one flatboat, which crosses the river in about seven minutes. It crosses by means of a wire rope. The river is not fordable. This morning, several horses with equipments floated down the river in front of my pickets, all quiet in my front, unquote. On the 12th, General George Meade fully expected to make an attack the next day. In a dispatch to General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, he explained the situation, quote, Upon advancing my right flank across the Antietam this morning, the enemy abandoned Funkstown and Hagerstown, and my line now extends from the later place to Fairplay. The advance of the cavalry on the right showed the enemy to be strongly posted on the Hagerstown and Williamsport Road, about a mile and a half from Hagerstown. 
On the left, the cavalry advance showed them to be in position back of St. James College and at Downsville. Their position runs along the high ground from Downsville to near Hagerstown. This position they are prospecting. Batteries are established on it. It is my intention to attack them tomorrow unless something intervenes to prevent it. For the reason, that delay will strengthen the enemy and will not increase my force. Unquote. John Hay, Lincoln's private secretary, wrote of the president's state of mind. Quote, the president seemed in especially good humor today, as he had pretty good evidence that the enemy were still on the north side of the Potomac and Meade had announced his intention of attacking them in the morning. The president seemed very happy in this prospect of a brilliant success. He had been rather impatient with General Meade's slow movement since Gettysburg, but concluded today that Meade would yet show sufficient activity to inflict the coup de grace upon the flying rebels. Unquote. At 8 p.m., Meade met with his high command in a third and final council of war at his headquarters near Jones's Crossroads. At the consultation were the corps commanders, Hayes, Sykes, Sedgwick, Howard, and Slocum. Also included were two new faces, General James Wadsworth and William French. Wadsworth, the first division commander in the first corps, was temporarily in charge of the corps because John Newton was sick. William French was chosen to replace David Burney as commander of the third corps. French has come up a lot in the series, but I've never given him a real introduction. He was a 48-year-old Baltimore native and a West Point graduate of the class of 1837. He served as an artillery officer in the Antebellum Army in the Seminole Wars and the Mexican War. In the former conflict, he clashed with his subordinate, then-Brevet Major Thomas Stonewall Jackson. In the latter, he served as an aide-de-camp on the staff of General and future President Franklin Pierce. He began the Civil War as a brigade commander and had led an infantry division since the Battle of Antietam, though was transferred to the 8th Corps and commanded the Harpers Ferry District during the early days of the Gettysburg Campaign. Once his force joined the Army of the Potomac at Frederick, Meade integrated French's command into the 3rd Corps and placed him in charge of it. Already broken from the July 2nd fight at Gettysburg, the soldiers were further demoralized by the removal of Bernie for an unfamiliar face, but Meade did not trust Bernie's abilities. Also at the council were Generals Alfred Pleasanton, Governor Warren, and Andrew Humphreys, Meade's new chief of staff. The following year, Meade would testify in front of a congressional joint committee, quote, In view of the important and tremendous issues involved in the result, knowing that if I were defeated the whole question would be reversed, the road to Washington and to the North open, and all the fruits of my victory at Gettysburg dissipated. I did not feel that I would be right in assuming the responsibility of blindly attacking the enemy without any knowledge of his position. I therefore called a council of war of my corps commanders, who were the officers to execute this duty, if it was determined upon and laid before them the precise condition of affairs. I told them that I had reason to believe from all I could ascertain that General Lee's position was a very strong one, and that he was prepared to give battle and defend it if attacked that it was not in my power from a want of knowledge of the ground, and from not having had time to make reconnaissances, to indicate any precise point of attack, that nevertheless I was in favor of moving forward and attacking the enemy and taking the consequences, but that I left it to their judgment and would not do it unless it met with their approval, unquote. Oliver Howard remembered, quote, Meade read us Lee's proclamation, apparently fresh and hearty, wherein ostensibly he courted an opportunity for another trial of strength under more favorable circumstances than those which caused him his reverse at Gettysburg. All regarded that proclamation as something to keep up Confederate courage and allowed to come to us for strategic effect, unquote. The room was largely split on the question of whether or not they should attack the next day. 
In the end, it seemed that Meade only truly considered the voices of his core commanders, not including Wadsworth. Of the six senior commanders, five were against an assault without reconnaissance. Slocum, Sedgwick, Sykes, Hayes, and French. The only one to side with Meade was General Howard. General Warren later remembered, quote, I do not think I ever saw the principal corps commander so unanimous in favor of not fighting as on that occasion, unquote. It seemed that the biggest issue they had with the attack was the lack of intelligence of the strength of the Confederate position and the terrain. Time was not on Meade's side at this point. Another storm had rolled in on the morning of the 12th, but river conditions were more favorable for crossing than they had been even a couple of days earlier. Lieutenant Ronald McKenzie, a Union engineer, took measurements of the Potomac at Sandy Hook, opposite Harper's Ferry, and reported to Meade, quote, The river has fallen 18 inches in the last 24 hours and is still falling. A citizen states that he is acquainted with the river here and that he judges from its appearance at this place that the fords near Shepherdstown and Williamsport are now practicable for infantry. Unquote. Of the three consultations that Meade held with his top lieutenants, this was the first one where the majority of the generals held the opposite view of his own. He could have ordered an attack anyway. General French told him straight up, quote, If you give the order to attack, we will fight just as well under it as if our opinions were not against it. Unquote. But in the end, he deferred to their judgment. Many would later criticize Meade for his indecisiveness, but General Sedgwick would defend his commander's actions in a letter to his wife written less than a week later. Quote, Two such armies, having fought each other so often, having known each other so long and intimately, cannot very well afford to play it fast and loose. At Hagerstown, Lee had a very strong position, which Meade, with his certainly not superior force, could not with safety attack. He could not be morally certain of success, and dared not risk a failure which would entail such serious consequences as the defeat would not have failed to bring about." Unquote. General French, who also opposed the attack, had a pretty sound understanding of the situation. Quote, there is one of two things which will happen. One, Lee has chosen a position in which he awaits our attack. Or two, we will stumble on him in our present advance, which has the advantage of a previous study of the configuration of the country, watercourses, roads, ridges, extension of roads, etc. With the best order of marching and the best routes of direction, he will have so far the advantage. Unquote. The following day, Meade did not issue orders for an assault. Instead, each corps was ordered to send a division forward to probe the rebel line for potential weaknesses. He wrote to Halleck on the 13th, quote, In my dispatch of yesterday, I stated that it was my intention to attack the enemy today unless something intervened to prevent it. Upon calling my corps commanders together and submitting the question to them, five out of six were unqualifiedly opposed to it under these circumstances, in view of the momentous consequences attended upon a failure to succeed. I did not feel myself authorized to attack until after I had made more careful examinations of the enemy's position, strength, and defensive works. These examinations are now being made. So far as completed, they show the enemy to be strongly prospected on a ridge running from the rear of Hagerstown past Downsville to the Potomac. I shall continue these reconnaissances with the expectation of finding some weak point upon which if I succeed I shall hazard an attack. General Smith with the advanced division of General Couch's force has arrived here today but from the organization and condition of these troops in the short time they have to serve I cannot place much reliance upon them. Difficulties arising with the troops sent me whose terms of service are about expiring respecting the dates at which they expire I beg to be informed by the department upon the head respecting each such regiment sent me unquote. Halleck had previously been quite aggressive at pushing Meade to attack Lee but had backed off a little in recent days 
With the news that Meade had called off a potential attack, Halleck's attitude reverted. In response to Meade's dispatch, he wrote, quote, You are strong enough to attack and defeat the enemy before he can effect a crossing. Act upon your own judgment and make your generals execute your orders. Call no council of war. It is proverbial that councils of war never fight. Reinforcements are pushed on as rapidly as possible. Do not let the enemy escape. Unquote. The reinforcements that Halleck mentioned were most likely that of General Benjamin F. Kelly's Railroad Division, which was still at Hancock, Maryland. In a dispatch sent earlier on the 13th, he once again urged Kelly to move his force to attack or cut off the Confederates' route of escape. Unfortunately, Kelly's force did not budge. The responsibility for destroying the Army of Northern Virginia was placed solely on Meade and his soldiers. The Army had also been reinforced by the New York National Guard, French's command, and other units from Washington, perhaps as many as 20,000 men, but the quality of these soldiers was generally low. Most of the reinforcements had previously been on garrison duty in Washington or Harper's Ferry, and the militia was all but useless. A more seasoned soldier in the Army had this to say, quote, the militia was composed mostly of young gentlemen who had left their places behind the counter or at the desk for the double purpose of lending their aid to their country in its hour of need and enjoying a month of what they hoped would be amateur soldiering. They were all complaining bitterly of the terrible marches they had endured, and swore that they would shoot the general if they ever got into a fight. They had marched all the way from Harrisburg, to which point they had been brought in cars, at the rate from 8 to 15 miles a day. In addition to these severe marches, they had been subjected to great privations. Many of them had not tasted any butter for more than a week, and nearly all declared that they had absolutely nothing to eat for several days. Unquote. You can tell from his tone that the veterans of the army had little respect for these green soldiers. Quotations around soldiers. Abraham Lincoln was also beginning to feel nervous about the situation. John Hay recorded in his diary on the 13th, quote, the president begins to grow anxious and impatient about Meade's silence. I thought and told him that there was nothing to prevent the enemy from getting away by the falling waters if they were not vigorously attacked. Eckert says Kelly is up on their rear. Nothing can save them if Meade does his duty. I doubt him. He is an engineer. Unquote. Though West Pointers dominated the high command of basically every Union army, the politicians in Washington had little faith in their abilities. And who could blame them, particularly after the failures of McClellan in 1862? Other than U.S. Grant, few had shown the initiative and tenacity that it took to defeat rebel armies in the field. As the Confederate cavalry leader, General Nathan Bedford Forrest, put it, quote, War means fighting, and fighting means killing, unquote. The West Point trained engineers were typically cautious by nature and threw up defensive works at every opportunity. In some cases, this was appropriate, but the White House and War Department felt that they had the momentum, and time was of the essence. Now was not the moment to slow down and begin a siege. The weather on the 13th was cloudy, with a heavy fog and occasional thunderstorms. Low visibility hampered Meade's scouts from being able to get a good sense of the strength of Lee's army. The Federal Army Commander, with General Humphreys and Warren, personally reconnoitered the ground, but nothing of real value was learned. Minor skirmishes broke out all along the line that day, but the assault that many were anticipating never came, much to the annoyance of some. There were soldiers on both sides that were itching for a fight. For the Confederate soldiers, they wished to pay back the Yankees for what had happened at Gettysburg. Dr. Caspar Hankel, a Confederate army surgeon, wrote in a letter to his cousin, quote, Our men have thrown up breastworks on a good position, and feel confident of giving the Yankees a whipping if they come up to them. It is now two o'clock, and no indications of an advance. 
The river has been past crossing for some days, so that the most of our wagons still remain on this side. So should we be repulsed, what a scatteration there will be. We must lose all. The pontoon bridge will be completed today, and by the morning the river can be forded. If we had the Yankees in the fix they had us in for several days, I do not think many of them would escape. Our men and officers seem very confident of saving all. Unquote. For the Federals, they wish to crush the Confederate Army once and for all, dealing the rebellion its final death blow. Death blow! Death blow! When someone tries to blow you up, not because of who you are, but because of different reasons altogether. One Pennsylvania soldier noted, quote, We must have a battle in the morning as Lee can't get over the river today. Everyone is anxious, but determined, for it must be a terrific battle with a desperate foe and we must win. Unquote. On the 13th, Colonel Charles Wainwright, the 1st Corps Artillery Brigade Commander, spoke with General James Wadsworth, who was still in temporary command of the 1st Corps. Wadsworth had been one of the dissenting voices amongst Meade's Corps commanders during the Council of War the previous night. He was quite candid with Wainwright and expressed confidence in attacking, but the artillerists differed in opinion. He recorded in his diary that day, quote, There is something to be admired in the old man's earnestness, and did it concern no life but his own, it would be grand. His only idea seems to be that war means fight. Yonder are the enemy. Pitch in. I know nothing about the left of our line, but Lee's position in front of us is very strong, and so far as we can see, well mounted with artillery. My opinion is most decided that we could not carry it. Unquote. General Oliver Howard, the one-armed Christian general and perhaps Meade's most aggressive corps commander, sent forth General Alexander Schimmel Fenwick's brigade in a reconnaissance in force. Schimmelfenig, along with Kilpatrick's cavalry, probed the Confederate left, looking for weaknesses. Howard was itching for a fight, but Meade would not allow a general engagement to begin that day. By the afternoon, he was aware of the new pontoon bridge, but he must have believed that Lee wasn't going to retreat in the next 12 hours. Major John Nevin of the 93rd Pennsylvania surmised, quote, We lay in line all day, an anxious, expectant day, because every moment we looked for the attack that was to be the beginning of the end. But it came not. Meade must either be very confident that Lee can't escape, or else he or his advisors want him to escape. Unquote. Based on all the evidence, I don't believe Meade wanted Lee to escape, but he certainly did misjudge the situation. R.E. Lee figured that if an attack was going to come, it would be against the left wing. The right had a higher concentration of artillery and was protected by the river. Lee sent word to Yule and Stuart to be prepared. When the fighting died down in the afternoon, Lee said of his foe, quote, they have but little courage, unquote. The Confederate Army now had a small window of opportunity to begin their evacuation. The river was at a fordable level and the Federals had yet to attack. While the Rebels were certainly hoping for a rematch with the Yankees, Lee wasn't willing to pass up the chance to slip away unscathed. During the afternoon, he and his staff planned out the evacuation. Under the cover of darkness, the entire army would leave its defensive works and cross the river. General Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps, minus its artillery and Hayes' Louisiana Tiger Brigade, would ford the river at Williamsport. 
The Army Reserve trains, followed by the 1st and 3rd Corps, and all of the artillery would march downriver to Falling Waters, where it would use the pontoon bridge. Stuart's cavalry would screen the evacuation and would fall back at Williamsport once the rest of the army had reached Virginia. After sunset, the withdrawal of Ewell's Corps began. The soldiers quietly left their entrenchments and marched down the Williamsport-Hagerstown Road past Lee's headquarters, waded through the CNO Canal Aqueduct, and then descended the banks of the Potomac to the fording site. Torches illuminated the way, but occasional rainstorms made it an incredibly dark night. The weather also made the road conditions a nightmare. Even though the river was not quite as high as it had been even two days ago, it was still three to four feet deep in most places. The Potomac isn't terribly rough at Williamsport, but it isn't completely placid either. One misstep could lead to a soldier being swept away in the current. Private Samuel Pickens of the 5th Alabama, O'Neill's Brigade, wrote of his experience on the night of the 13th. Quote, we had a very rough, muddy, and bad marching before reaching the pike, which was itself perfectly sloppy. And to make it still more disagreeable, there was a light rain falling for a while. The road was so blocked up with troops that we did not get on very fast, and when we got to Williamsport, we found it crowded with soldiers. Here we had to stand and wait for an hour or more, for there was no place to sit down, as the streets were ankle-deep with mud and water. Finally, we moved down towards the river, but every few yards the column would halt, so that we were just creeping along at a most fatiguing pace. We went to a ford several hundred yards higher up the river than where we crossed before, going up the aqueduct through the water that smelt very offensively. As soon as we got near the river, we knew the men were waiting, by the yelling and hallooing that we heard. The Potomac being swollen was very wide and was over waist deep. The water felt cool when we first entered it, but afterwards very pleasant. We waited two and two side by side, holding on to each other in order to resist the current better and be more steady. There were orders for the men to hang their cartridge boxes around their necks, but a great many failed to do it, and there was a considerable amount of ammunition damaged or destroyed by getting wet. Our clothes, blankets partly, and haversacks all got wet, which increased our load and made it very disagreeable marching after crossing. The banks were muddy and on this side so steep and slippery that it was difficult to scuffle up it. We were very tired and confidently expected to stop directly after getting over the river, but on we went without stopping. Although the distance from Hagerstown was only about 6 miles and we were on our feet from 8 or 9 o'clock last night, it was daybreak when we got across the Potomac." Unquote. Major William Blackford of Jeb Stewart's staff described the rough time the wagons and mule teams had during the crossing. Quote, it was a strange and interesting sight. On either bank, fires illuminated the scene. The water was very swift. By the bright, lurid light, the long line of heads and shoulders and the dim sparkling of their musket barrels could be traced across the watery space, dwindling away almost to a thread before it reached the further shore. The passage of the wagon trains was attended with some loss, but the current in some places swept them down past the ford into the deep water. It was curious to watch the behavior of the mules and the teams. As the water rose over their backs, they began rearing and springing vertically upward, and as they went deep and deeper, the less would be seen of them before they made the spring which would bring the bodies half out of the water. Then nothing would be seen but their ears above the water, until by violent effort the poor brutes moved again, springing aloft. And indeed, after the waters had closed over them, occasionally one would appear in one last plunge high and above the surface." Unquote. The Confederate First Corps waited for the second to clear the way before it began its march toward Falling Waters, where it would utilize the pontoon bridge. After the war, General James Longstreet described the evacuation in his memoirs. Quote, 
General Lee, worn by strain of the past two weeks, asked me to remain at the bridge and look to the work of the night. And such a night is seldom experienced even in the rough life of the soldier. The rain fell in showers, sometimes in blinding sheets, during the entire night. The wagons cut deep in the mud during the early hours and began to stall going down the hill, and one or two of the batteries were stalled before they reached the bridge. The best standing points were ankle-deep in mud, and the roads halfway to the knee, puddling and getting worse. We could only keep three or four torches alight, and those were dimmed at times when the heavy rains came. Then, to crown our troubles, a load of wounded came down, missed the end of the bridge, and plunged the wagon into the raging torrent. Right at the end of the bridge, the water was three feet deep and the current swift and surging. It did not seem possible that a man could be saved, but everyone who could get through the mud and water rushed to their relief, and Providence was there to bring tears of joy to the sufferers. The wagon was righted and on the bridge and rolled off to Virginia's banks. The ground under the poles became so puddled before daylight that they would bend under the wheels and the feet of the animals until they could bend no further, and then would occasionally slip to one side far enough to spring up and catch a horse's foot and throw him broadside in the puddled mud. Under the trials and vexations, everyone was exhausted of patience. The general and staff were ready for a family quarrel as the only relief for their pent-up trouble when daylight came, and with it General Lee to relieve and give us opportunity for a little repose. Unquote. Despite the precarity of the situation, Confederate quartermasters and forage teams continued to strip the land of anything of use before they left Union territory. On the 13th, the 1st Corps Artillery Reserve Quartermaster recorded that they'd requisitioned 25 horses from 19 different owners and over 18,000 pounds of hay. The Corps Quartermaster also noted that they'd taken 4,000 pounds of corn and over 1,600 pounds of hay. As the night wore on, progress was slower than the Confederate leaders hoped. Fortunately, the retreat went undetected for many hours. To keep up the ruse, Jeb Stuart's cavalrymen occupied the vacated Confederate trenches. They spoke loudly and played music to give the appearance that the main army was still there. The last unit to leave the breastworks was the division of General Henry Heath. By matter of happenstance, the unit that had initiated the battle on July 1st would serve as the rear guard during the army's retreat. From the time that Heath's division withdrew from the Downsville line, it would be some 12 hours before they reached the river. Heath's four brigades dug in on a hill near the crossing site where they would remain until all the other units had crossed. At 3 a.m., the troopers of Judson Kilpatrick's division were awoken to begin a reconnaissance of the Confederate position opposite Hagerstown. As they advanced toward the Downsville line, they were surprised to find that they met no resistance. Pickets were gone. Then they came upon the earthworks. All that was left behind were discarded materials and Quaker guns, logs painted black, which was a common trick used during the Civil War to give the appearance of artillery where it wasn't. The rebel army had up and vanished. Kilpatrick sent back word to General Meade. The next step was obviously to find out where they'd gone. General George Custer sent Captain George Drew of his staff to deliver orders to Major Luther Trowbridge of the 5th Michigan. Quote, Make no noise about it, no bugle calls, but boots and saddles right away. The enemy has fallen back and we are ordered to find out where he has gone, unquote. Five minutes later, Trowbridge led his regiment toward Williamsport, but they were too late. By the time they'd reached the town, the last of the Confederate cavalry had crossed the river. Trowbridge later wrote, quote, I cannot describe my feelings of disappointment and discouragement, unquote. If there was anyone more upset about the mischance to strike the rebels again, it was Judson Kilpatrick. The aggressive cavalry general issued orders to his two brigades to march quickly toward Falling Waters, where they hoped they could still catch the tail of Lee's army. 
Custer's Michigan Brigade raced toward the pontoon bridge. By daybreak, most of the Army of Northern Virginia was across the Potomac. All that remained by the morning were Hood's Division and A.P. Hill's Third Corps. Heath's division was stretched out in a line running north to south, perpendicular to the Falling Waters Road, just about a mile east or so of the pontoon bridge. General Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry brigade mistakenly crossed the pontoon bridge too early, assuming that they were no longer needed, but they were supposed to screen Heath's rear guard when it was time for them to withdraw. The premature retreat of Lee's brigade caused a number of problems, including a traffic jam at the bridge. Heath and his soldiers weren't prepared for an attack, they had no cavalry screen, and the picket line was not sent out very far in advance. Soldiers were exhausted from lack of sleep. Most were either cooking breakfast or lying around, trying to catch some rest before it was their turn to cross the river. The rain had mostly stopped, though a heavy mist hung over the field, which made visibility of the approaches to falling waters quite low. Meanwhile, on the western side of the Potomac, the Confederate army gathered. Robert E. Lee, who had not slept the night before, watched anxiously as the Third Corps began to cross the river. He sent various staff officers to check on the situation at Williamsport and on Hill's progress. Major Charles Venable, one of Lee's aides and the Assistant Inspector General, returned from the Ford sites opposite Williamsport to report that all had gone well over there. With all quiet for the moment, Venable took an opportunity to snag a few moments of rest in the grass. When Lee noticed this, he laid his overcoat over the young Major. Around this time, another staff officer presented a cup of coffee to Lee, which after taking a drink, the general declared it to be the best that he'd ever tasted. Major Moxley Sorrell, Longstreet's chief of staff, wrote of Lee's anxious state around this time, quote, The general's anxiety was intense. He expected to be attacked at the passage of the river. There was good reason to fear why Meade had failed to do so is yet to be explained. General Lee, like everyone, has been up the whole night and his staff officers were stretched in sleep on the ground. He desired me to recross the bridge for him, to see General Hill in person, and urge him to the utmost haste in getting his men over, stopping only when imperatively necessary. I immediately pushed back, finding the road deep in mud but clear of any impediment to the men. Broken wagons or a dismounted gun or two had been cleared away and thrown one side. General Lee's message was given and Hill asked me to assure the commander that he should get safely across. Notwithstanding a slight attack that was even then developing itself on his rear brigade, Pettigrews. Returning, I reported to the general that all was clear. Hill was about three quarters of a mile from the bridge and marching rapidly to it. What was his leading division? I was asked. General Anderson, sir. I am sorry, Colonel. My friend Dick is quick enough pursuing, but in retreat I fear he will not be as sharp as I should like, said Lee. Just then a heavy gun was fired lower down, filling the gorge of the river with the most threatening echoes. There, said the general, I was expecting it, the beginning of the attack, Unquote. Just after 11 a.m., Heath and Pettigrew were conversing when a regiment of cavalry was spotted on a hill about a mile away. Neither could identify the unit as they appeared to be wearing Confederate uniforms, but carried a U.S. flag. The two generals were perplexed by the sight. Heath assumed it must be Fitz Lee's brigade, and Pettigrew concurred, though he found it obnoxious that they displayed what seemed to be captured Union colors. Even as they drew nearer and the pickets opened fire, Heath continued to believe that the troopers were friendly, but after a few moments it became clear that this was not the case. Major Peter Weber led Companies B and F of the 6th Michigan Cavalry forward in a mounted charge against the unsuspecting rebel infantrymen. The scene turned into chaos rather quickly. The Wolverines galloped in, sabers drawn, pistols firing, demanding the surrender of Heath's men. Despite the confusion, the Confederates managed to rally. 
Soldiers woke up or threw down their food and grabbed their muskets, with officers directing them into line of battle. Heath tried to maintain order and instill confidence in his men. Pettigrew's horse was frightened by the small arms fire and reared back. His arm was in a sling due to the wound he'd received at Pickett's charge, and he couldn't control the animal, and both fell to the ground. Private Val Giles of the 4th Texas Infantry had been waiting with the rest of Hood's division to cross the pontoons when the attack began. He recalled, quote, The thunder of the artillery from the hills, the rattle of musketry on Pettigrew's skirmish line, the long gray columns of infantry standing there in the misty dawn, patiently waiting their turn to cross the bridge was a gloomy picture, but a grand one. As the regiment struck the bridge, I looked back and that scene was photographed on my memory. The band of my regiment was in front and they reached the Virginia side. Old Collins, the bugler, ordered his men to play Dixie. The glorious tune rang out merrily, blending its melody with the hoarse roar of Federal artillery, greeting the weary infantry who answered back with a cheer that went echoing over the hills. The bridge began to sway as the men picked up the step to the tune. Officers admonished the men to stop and keep moving, but we plodded on in rags and hope, believing we were right and would finally win." Unquote. The momentum of the Federal charge carried them past the first line of the infantry. Major Peter Weber and his men had caught the rebels off guard, but they were now trapped between Heath's and Lane's divisions. Weber ordered his troopers to turn around and charge again at Heath's men, primarily the brigades of Brockenbrough and Davis. Despite the high casualties of those two brigades, they held their own. The color bearer of the 47th Virginia, Brockenbrough's brigade, yelled, Come on, boys, it's nothing but cavalry! Despite the impressive performance of the Union horse soldiers during the campaign, the infantry still had little respect for the mounted branch of the army. One rebel soldier remembered, quote, The men clubbed their guns and knocked the Yankees off their horses. One man knocked off one with a fence rail and another killed a Yankee with an axe. Unquote. Much of the fighting centered around J.M. Downey's farm along the Falling Waters Road. An unnamed Union corporal posted at the barn was wreaking havoc on the Confederates. General Pettigrew, who couldn't remount his horse because of his injured arm, directed some soldiers of Archer's brigade to fire at Downey's barn, but they couldn't bring down the Michigander. Pettigrew himself walked closer to get a better shot, but before he could draw his own pistol, the trooper shot him in the abdomen. Pettigrew, badly wounded, fell to the ground. His staff officers rushed to his side. Because of the severity of the wound, they advised him to stay on the field until the fighting was over, which would almost certainly lead to his capture. Pettigrew refused, saying, quote, I would die before I would again be taken a prisoner, unquote. Though in immense pain, the soldiers carried Pettigrew off the field. Private Neville Staten of the 26th North Carolina aimed his musket at the man who shot Pettigrew, but the weapon misfired. He then rushed the corporal and beat him to death with a rock. The man leading the attack fared even worse. Major Peter Weber, caught in the middle of the action, received a mini-ball square in his forehead and died instantly. Weber's two companies were cut up badly in the action. Forty men were killed and another 85 were wounded. The rest of Custer's brigade was now on the scene, but they would not repeat the same mistake. Instead of charging in on horseback, they dismounted and mostly used their carbines to shoot at the rebel rear guard. Lieutenant Alexander Pennington's Battery M deployed on a hill just behind Custer's men and opened fire. Meanwhile, General Lane was finally able to lead his division over the bridge, clearing the way for Heath to fall back as well. General John Buford's Cavalry Division was on its way to attempt to cut off the Confederate retreat. The troopers of Devon's and Gamble's brigades charged in, on foot, taking many prisoners as they engaged in close combat with the few rebels that remained on Maryland's soil. Coincidentally, they were fighting against some of the same troops that they'd encountered on July 1st. 
Colonel John and Brockenborough, rather cowardly, tried to order his troops to advance against the dismounted troopers, while he himself retreated across the pontoon bridge. Some men complied, but many refused to follow orders as it was becoming an every-man-for-himself kind of situation. A West Virginian of Devon's brigade wrote a few weeks later, quote, It was the grandest thing I was ever in. The rebels would get behind fences and we would charge on them and make them skedaddle like fun. More than one half of the prisoners we took were barefooted, and they said they had nothing to eat for two days except some fresh beef boiled without salt. They were a rough-looking set. The attack of Buford's division was executed far better than Kilpatrick's. Kill Cavalry had rushed his men to the scene and they were thrown in piecemeal fashion with almost no consideration for proper tactics. Then once Buford's brigades were on the scene, Kilpatrick made no effort to coordinate their actions, which might have led to even greater results for the Federals. Heath's men made a mad dash for the pontoons. The Confederate artillery batteries had been deployed on the bluffs on the opposite side of the river to provide some cover for the rear guard. They opened fire on the Yankee horse soldiers as they continued to move forward to the riverbank. Buford later wrote, quote, As our troops neared the bridge, the enemy cut the Maryland side loose, and the bridge swung to the Virginia side. Unquote. The last of the Confederates slipped away, and the Battle of Falling Waters was over. The day wasn't completely fruitless for the Federals. They captured at least 500 men, and perhaps as many as 2,000. Most of them were stragglers, men who were too tired or weak to continue. There were also a number of men who probably saw this as their last chance to desert from the Confederate Army and took the chance to surrender to Union forces. Still, it wasn't the closure the Yankees had hoped for. After Gettysburg and Vicksburg, many foresaw the end of the war, but it was not to be. During all this time, the main body of the Army of the Potomac was also advancing in the hopes of catching the rebels. Meade had learned of the withdrawal earlier that morning, and by 9 a.m. the entire army was marching toward the Downsville line in an armed reconnaissance. They were disappointed to find the earthworks completely abandoned. At 11 a.m., Meade sent off a message to General Halleck, quote, On advancing my army this morning, with a view of ascertaining the exact position of the enemy and attacking him if the result of the examination should justify one, I found on reaching his lines that they were evacuated. I immediately put my army in pursuit, the cavalry in advance." Halleck relayed the message to the White House and then sent back this response at 1 p.m. The enemy should be pursued and cut up, wherever he may have gone. This pursuit may or may not be upon the rear or flank, as circumstances require. The inner flank towards Washington presents the greatest advantage. Supply yourself from the country as far as possible. I cannot advise details as I do not know where Lee's army is, nor where your pontoon bridges are. I need hardly say to you that the escape of Lee's army without another battle has created great dissatisfaction in the mind of the president, and it will require an active and energetic pursuit on your part to remove the impression that it has not been sufficiently active heretofore. Unquote. That last sentence in particular irked Meade. He was already fed up with the White House and Halleck, but the assertion that Lincoln was dissatisfied with his handling of the situation was just about the last straw. Immediately upon the receipt of Halleck's message, he rashly replied, quote, Having performed my duty conscientiously, and to the best of my ability, 
The censure of the president conveyed in your dispatch of 1 p.m. this day is, in my judgment, so undeserved that I feel compelled so respectfully to ask to be immediately relieved from the command of this army. Unquote. Some three weeks after Joe Hooker had threatened to resign and the White House accepted it with no reservation, Meade had now done the same. Lincoln, however, would not accept Meade's resignation. Despite the obvious frustrations with the post-battle results, he had still defeated Lee like no other army commander had done before. Lincoln was willing to give him a longer leash than Hooker, who had lost the Battle of Chancellorsville and had acted petulantly afterward. I'm sure they also considered the poor optics of losing a second army commander in less than a month, so Halleck performed some damage control. His response to me read, quote, My telegram stating the disappointment of the president at the escape of Lee's army was not intended as a censure, but as a stimulus to an active pursuit. It is not deemed a sufficient cause for your application to be relieved, unquote. While Meade would remain in command of the army, the damage was done and his relationship with the president never fully recovered. Lincoln himself drafted a message to be sent to Meade later that day, quote, Major General Meade, I have just seen your dispatch to General Halleck asking to be relieved of your command because of a supposed censure of mine. I am very, very grateful to you for the magnificent success that you gave the cause of the country at Gettysburg, and I am now sorry to be the author of the slightest pain to you, but I was in such deep distress myself that I could not restrain some expression of it. I had been oppressed nearly ever since the battles at Gettysburg by what appeared to be evidences that yourself and General Couch and General Smith were not seeking a collision with the enemy, but were trying to get him across the river without another battle. What these evidences were, if you please, I hope to tell you at some time, when we shall both feel better. The case summarily stated is this. You fought and beat the enemy at Gettysburg, and of course, to say the least, his loss was as great as yours. He retreated and you did not, as it seemed to me pressingly pursue him, but a flood in the river detained him, till by slow degrees you were again upon him. You had at least 20,000 veteran troops directly with you, and as many more raw ones within supporting distance, all in addition to those who fought with you at Gettysburg, while it was not possible that he had received a single recruit, and yet you stood and let the flood run down, bridges be built, and the enemy move away at his leisure without attacking him, and Couch and Smith, the latter left Carlisle in time, upon all ordinary calculation, to have aided you in the last battle at Gettysburg, but he did not arrive, at the end of more than ten days. I believe twelve, under constant urging he reached Hagerstown from Carlisle, which is not an inch over fifty-five miles, if so much, and Couch's movement was very little different. Again, my dear general, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. If you could not safely attack Lee last Monday, how can you possibly do so south of the river, when you can take with you very few more than two-thirds of the force you had then in hand? It would be unreasonable to expect, and I do not expect you can now effect much. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. I beg you will not consider this a prosecution, or persecution of yourself, as you had learned that I was dissatisfied. I have thought it best to kindly tell you why." Unquote. Interestingly enough, that letter was never sent, which I think was a smart decision. Whenever you're really angry with someone, it's best not to respond immediately. Instead, write out your thoughts and sit on it. That way you get your feelings out, but you don't say anything out loud that you might later regret. But privately, Lincoln was disheartened by what had happened. He aired his grievances to those close to him, 
His secretary, John Hay, recorded in his diary on the 14th, quote, This morning, the president seemed so depressed by Meade's dispatches of last night. They were so cautiously and almost timidly worded, talking about reconnoitering to find the enemy's weak place and other such. He said he feared he would do nothing. About noon came the dispatch stating that our worst fears were true. The enemy had gotten away unhurt. The president was deeply grieved. We had them within our grasp, he said. We had only to stretch forth our hands, and they were ours, and nothing I could say or do could make the army move. Unquote. Hay wrote on the 15th that the president's son, Robert Todd, told him that, quote, The tycoon is grieved silently but deeply about the escape of Lee. He said, If I had gone up there, I could have whipped them myself. Unquote. Naval Secretary Gideon Wells wrote that, quote, The president said he did not believe we could take up anything in cabinet today. Probably none of us were in a right frame of mind for deliberation. He was not. He wanted to see General Halleck at once. Stanton left abruptly. I retired slowly. The president hurried and overtook me. We walked together across the lawn to the departments and stopped and conversed a few moments at the gate. Unquote. Wells also recorded that Lincoln told him, quote, with a voice and countenance which I shall never forget, unquote, said to him, quote, I dreaded yet expected this, that there has seemed to me for a full week a determination that Lee, though we had him in our hands, should escape with his force and plunder, and that, my God, is the last of this army of the Potomac? There is bad faith somewhere. Meade has been pressed and urged, but only one of his generals was for an immediate attack. He was ready to pounce on Lee. The rest held back. What does it mean, Mr. Wells? Great God, what does it mean? Unquote. Lincoln's frustration is completely understandable. From his viewpoint in Washington, it did seem like all the army had to do was attack, and Lee's army would have been crushed. This is one of those counterfactuals that simply can't be proven. The engineers of the army that John Hay derided in his diary certainly did not believe that victory was assured. Colonel Charles Wainwright later wrote on the 14th, quote, this morning, when we turned out, Lee was gone clean over the Potomac into Virginia again. People at home, of course, will now pitch into Meade as they did McClellan after Antietam for letting him escape. My own opinion is that, under the circumstances, and with the knowledge General Meade then had, he was justified in putting off this attack until today. Unquote. After examining the Confederate earthworks, Wainwright had this to say, quote, these were by far the strongest I have seen yet, evidently laid out by engineers and built as if they meant to stand a month's siege. The parapet was a good six feet wide on top, and the guns, which were very thick, were all placed so as to get a perfect crossfire and to sweep their whole front. When shall we learn to put up such field works? Unquote. This is just one man's opinion. It should be noted that Wainwright was not an engineer by trade and had not attended West Point, though he was rather conservative by nature. Though fiercely loyal to the Union, he was on the opposite end of the political spectrum from the radical Republicans, who later blamed Meade for failing to bag Lee's army. By this point, Wainwright was beginning to feel that the Lincoln administration was corrupted by abolitionists, and wrote strongly of his disapproval of the direction the war was taking. Still, he was a talented artillery officer, and seemed to know his stuff when it came to that aspect of war, so his opinion shouldn't be taken lightly. Furthering Wainwright's comments, Meade's chief of staff, General Andrew Humphreys, would later back up his commander by testifying, quote, If we had made the attack, there is no doubt that we should have lost very severely, unquote. And later that day, Meade explained his actions in a letter to his wife, quote, I found Lee in a very strong position entrenched. I hesitated to attack him, without some examination of the mode of approaching him. I called my corps commanders together, and they voted against attacking him. 
This morning when I advanced to feel his position and seek for a weak point, I found he had retired in the night and was nearly across the river. I immediately started in pursuit and my cavalry captured 2,000 prisoners, two guns, several flags, and killed General Pettigrew. On reporting these facts to General Halleck, he informed me the president was very much dissatisfied at the escape of Lee. I immediately telegraphed I had done my duty to the best of my ability, and that the expressed dissatisfaction of the president I considered undeserved censure, and asked to be immediately relieved. In reply, he said it was not intended to censure me, but only to spur me on to an act of pursuit, and that it was not deemed sufficient cause for relieving me. This is exactly what I expected. Unless I did impracticable things, fault would be found with me. I have ignored the senseless adulation of the public and the press, and I am now just as indifferent to the censure bestowed without just cause. I start tomorrow to run another race with Lee. Unquote. The entire army, Meade highest among them, was incredibly frustrated by the situation, but there was no time to pout. He ordered General David Gregg to lead his cavalry division to the southeast to the forward site at Sandy Hook, opposite the river from Harper's Ferry. The rest of the army would also be ordered to march in that direction the following day. Meanwhile, the Army of Northern Virginia could breathe a sigh of relief. They'd reached Confederate territory mostly intact, but they weren't completely out of the woods. Lee's exhausted soldiers still needed to get back to central Virginia before the Army of the Potomac, and there was still quite a bit of ground to cover. There was also the issue of dealing with the wounded, of which there were thousands. Some had already begun their journey up the Valley Turnpike if they were lucky enough to catch the ferry while the army was gathered around Williamsport. The main body of the army continued south to Bunker Hill, about 21 miles south of Falling Waters, where they rested for a couple of days. Among the wounded was General James Johnson Pettigrew, who suffered terribly from the pistol wound received at the J.M. Downey farm. The Tar Heel General made it as far south as Bunker Hill, but three days later, on July 17th, he died. Later that day, Lee wrote in a letter to Secretary of War James Seddon, quote, The Army has lost a brave soldier, and the Confederacy an accomplished officer, unquote. About 8,500 wounded and sick men traveled with the Army up the valley to Winchester, the site of the first receiving hospital. Those in too bad of shape to continue would be left there to convalesce, and many others had their wounds retreated. Most of the soldiers suffered from gunshot wounds. Additionally, they suffered from infections as well as the usual camp diseases like typhoid fever, dysentery, and diarrhea. A correspondent with the Richmond Daily Dispatch wrote in early July, quote, Whatever Winchester may have been in different times, it certainly now presents a picture of sad coloring. Not a cart, wagon, or drag is to be seen. Save the army wagon, not a carriage enlivens the street. The thoroughfares are miry with filth, and the general impression upon entering the town is that you have driven into a huge livery stable, not particularly well kept. Nearly every door is closed, and few persons are seen save soldiers and a few refugees, just returned from nine months' banishment, looking with anxious and careful scrutiny to discover, amidst the general desolation, a few places of well-remembered scenes and localities." Unquote. Laura Lee, a citizen of Winchester, would record in her diary her impression of the arrival of the army's wounded. Quote, From daylight, crowds, hundreds of wounded men, have been trooping by, all wounded in the hand, arm, or head, but able to walk. The commissary furnishes rations for the citizens to cook, and the poor fellows had a good meal as soon as they arrived, some at the hospital, but hundreds at the doors as they passed through the streets. Unquote. Dr. Legrand Wilson, a Confederate Army surgeon, was one of the many doctors detailed to stay behind at the receiving hospital in Winchester. He later remembered, quote, I was placed in charge of a large new church. 
Here I went into the wholesale receiving and forwarding business. For three long weeks, I suppose, I dressed wounds from 30 to 50 men every day and shipped them up the valley to Stanton. Many of these wounds had not been dressed since the battle and were in a terrible condition. I don't know how the poor fellows stood it, but I never heard a murmur. Their wounds were very offensive and 90% were infested with vermin. I would frequently require a half hour or longer to get the maggots out of a wound, and when you remember that we had no disinfectants, you can understand why it was so tedious and why it was so disagreeable. It was certainly the most disagreeable duty I ever performed. I was engaged at it from morning till night, taking time at noon to go to dinner. In a few days, I began to lose my appetite, simply because I could never remove the offensive odor from my hands, and of course I began to lose flesh. In a short time, I began to have fever. I could see no place to stop and rest. The poor men must be attended to, and there was no one else, it seemed, to do the work. Unquote. Owing to the poor conditions and the rudimentary state of medicine in the mid-19th century, hundreds more would die in the valley from infection and disease. Medical personnel were also vulnerable. Wilson mentioned coming down with fever, but he did survive. Much less fortunate was Dr. John Tuskett, assistant surgeon of the 7th Tennessee, who died from pneumonia on July 24th. Overwhelmed by his duties, Dr. Wilson requested more help from rebel authorities, but no one could be spared. He continued, quote, if it had not been for the good ladies of Winchester who came to the rescue and helped me in every way possible, I don't know what I would have done. They made and brought me bandages, soft cloths, soap, and everything they could furnish, and one dear mother brought me every morning a basket full of a strong decoction of elder, which helped me very much in getting rid of the vermin, to say nothing of the good edibles and rich soups furnished the poor fellows." Unquote. The next knot for the wounded was Mount Jackson, where some more would be left behind at the Wayside Hospital there. One local resident recalled, quote, Nothing but poor, distressed soldiers passed through the town for nearly two weeks. Unquote. After that, the next and final stop in the valley was Stanton, which had the railroad connection to Richmond. For several days, citizens of Stanton anxiously awaited news of the battle. The town's lone telegraph operator, a man nicknamed Stump, was generally the first to hear of any major goings-on outside of the town. Rumors of a great Confederate victory swirled around the town on the 8th, but by July 10th, the people of Stanton began to learn that the campaign had not been as successful as previously reported. Then, over the next week, the casualties began to pour into town. Most soldiers that had survived the journey thus far had great odds of survival. Of the thousands of wounded that passed through Stanton, only a few dozen died. Some would recuperate there, but the ultimate destination was the Confederate capital, which had more resources and enough infrastructure to handle all the sick and wounded men. After resting for a couple of days, the main body of the Confederate army continued marching toward Front Royal, Virginia, and planned to cross the Blue Ridge at Manassas and Chester Gap. Meade felt that he had one more opportunity to block the Confederates by seizing the Blue Ridge passes that led into the Loudoun Valley. Just after Lee's army escaped on the 14th, General David M. Gregg's cavalry division rode from the area of Williamsport to Sandy Hook, Maryland, a little more than 20 miles downriver. Gregg's brigades crossed the river on a pontoon bridge that led into Harper's Ferry, which they secured as a crossing site for the rest of the army. Over the next few days, Gregg's brigade spread out in the area and skirmished with the Confederate pickets near Harper's Ferry in Charlestown. The 1st Main Cavalry Regiment, led by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Smith, rode to Shepherdstown, a town along the Potomac with Ford sites. On the 16th, the Mainers were confronted by elements of three brigades of Confederate cavalry, Lees, Chambliss, and Ferguson's. After a spirited skirmish, the Federals fell back in good order toward Harper's Ferry. 
During that time, the infantry and artillery of the Union Army moved down the Potomac to Sandy Hook in Berlin, Maryland, modern-day Brunswick, where they crossed the river on the 17th and 18th of July. They made good progress over the next few days as they headed south into the Loudoun Valley. Buford's cavalry division fanned out ahead of the army and was instructed to seize the mountain passes to block the Confederates' route back to Richmond. On the 20th, Buford sent General Wesley Merritt's reserve brigade toward Manassas Gap and Colonel William Gamble's brigade toward Chester Gap. Both wind gaps are almost equal distance from Front Royal, with Manassas Gap about seven miles due east and Chester's Gap about six to seven miles southeast. Unbeknownst to the Federals, the Confederates already occupied the latter position. It was the brigade of Brigadier General Montgomery Corse. Corse came up very briefly, many episodes back, but I don't expect anyone to remember the name. He was a 47-year-old Virginian, Mexican war veteran, militia leader, former gold prospector, and Alexandria-based banker. As a colonel, he led the 17th Virginia Infantry Regiment at the First Battle of Bull Run and subsequent battles on the Virginia Peninsula in 1862. He led Kemper's Brigade at the Second Battle of Manassas, South Mountain, and Antietam, and was wounded in all three battles. Following the Maryland campaign, he was promoted to Brigadier General and given command of his own brigade in General George Pickett's Virginia Division. His brigade participated in Longstreet's Southeastern Virginia Campaign in the spring of 1863, but following the Battle of Chancellorsville, his brigade was detached from Pickett's division and left behind in Virginia, much to Pickett, Longstreet, and Lee's chagrin. Corus probably wasn't too happy about missing out on the campaign at first, but his men were lucky enough to avoid the disaster of July 3rd. During the Army's invasion of Pennsylvania, his 1,200-man brigade guarded the important railroad hub at Hanover Junction, about 25 miles north of Richmond. They remained there until the day the Army recrossed the Potomac, at which point his brigade was recalled to rejoin Pickett's division. Wesley Merritt's cavalry brigade arrived at Manassas Gap on the 20th, where it bivouacked for the night. The next morning, Merritt ordered the 1st U.S. Cavalry to move through the Gap in the direction of Front Royal. At that very moment, Corse's brigade was also headed in the same direction. His five regiments marched through Front Royal that morning toward the Shenandoah River, where Confederate engineers were constructing a pontoon bridge for the army to use over the next few days. Unfortunately for Corse's men, it was not yet complete, and they'd have to ford the river. Like the Potomac, the water levels of the Shenandoah were much higher than normal. After a rather arduous crossing, four of the five regiments were sent southeast to Chester Gap, while the 17th Virginia Infantry, Corse's own former command, marched eastward to Manassas Gap. They ended up taking a position at Wapping Heights, a hill near the Gap named for the Wapping House, a relay station for stagecoaches coming in and out of the Shenandoah Valley. Sometime in the mid to late morning, Merritt's U.S. regulars spotted the advanced skirmish line of the 17th Virginia. Captain Eugene Baker led the 1st U.S. Cavalry in a charge against 50 or so Virginia pickets, quickly capturing about 20 men and routing the rest. Hoping to make quick work of this unknown rebel force, Baker continued moving westward, but the Yankee horsemen were stopped by the main body of the 17th Virginia. As the Federals approached Wapping Heights, the Virginians fired their muskets at a volley, killing or wounding several cavalrymen. The regulars fell back and attempted another charge, but the Virginians held their ground. Both Robert Simpson, commander of the 17th, and Captain Baker called back to their respective commanders for reinforcements. General Pickett responded by sending the remnants of Armistead's brigade, now led by Major Joseph Cabell, toward Wapping Heights, but it would be some time before they reached the battlefield. Merritt also called up reinforcements. First, he sent in the 2nd U.S. Cavalry, but like the first, they failed to drive off the rebel infantry. 
A third regiment, the 5th U.S. Cavalry, attempted to outflank the Confederates on their left along the mountain road, but they were once again thwarted. Major Simpson had posted two companies of his regiment on this road, and when the U.S. regulars came riding down, the Confederates unleashed a volley of musket fire. Only one man in the front rank was left standing. He and the rest of the regiment quickly fled the scene. At around 4 p.m., after about six hours of fighting, the Confederate reinforcements under Major Cabell arrived, and Merritt's brief numerical advantage was lost. He ordered his troopers to fall back toward Manassas Gap, satisfied just to hold their position for the time being. Merritt wrote a message to General Buford at 6 p.m. that read, quote, I am occupying the Gap at any and every cost. Have made frequent reports to headquarters to General Buford. Find the enemy in strong position at the west end of the Gap. Had two small fights yesterday and have been skirmishing more or less all day. Used artillery freely this morning. The enemy showed no disposition to advance save by turning my flanks. Columns of cavalry are reported moving down the valley to Front Royal from Winchester, and large wagon trains have been seen on that same road. Unquote. Campbell's brigade, which had been ordered to seize Chester Gap further to the south, failed to do so. The four other regiments of Corse's brigade arrived at the Gap first, and Gamble made no serious attempt to dislodge them. With Chester Gap open, the Confederates would begin moving into the Loudoun Valley en route to Culpeper, Virginia, later on the 21st, and over the course of the following day. By the end of the 22nd, the 1st and 3rd Corps had both left the Shenandoah Valley. All that remained was Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps. Because the 2nd had forded at Williamsport, they were a few miles behind the rest of the army, just after the crossing at the Potomac. Union General Benjamin F. Kelly's railroad division had finally gotten on the move and was near Martinsburg. Lee ordered Ewell to move his corps to trap or attack Kelly on the 21st, but the railroad division slipped away and Ewell continued southward up the valley behind the rest of the army. Two of Ewell's three divisions, Rhodes and Johnson's, arrived at Front Royal on the 23rd, crossed the Shenandoah, and headed for the mountain passes. In the mid-morning, Ewell was alerted to the presence of Union infantry at Manassas Gap. Three Union Corps, the 3rd, 5th, and 2nd, were in or around the Gap. Major General William French, leading the 3rd Corps, blocked the passage of the Confederates. The presence of the other two led Ewell to believe that the entire Army of the Potomac was potentially in front of him. General Ambrose Wright's brigade of the 3rd Corps had been left behind as a rear guard. They alone would not be able to hold off what turned out to be at least one Union division, if not the entire 3rd Corps. Several hours passed without much action, but finally around 2 p.m. on the 23rd, French ordered his lead division forward. At the head of the column was the Excelsior Brigade, now led by a 42-year-old Italian-American lawyer and politician from Brooklyn, Brigadier General Francis Spinola. In his first taste of combat, Spinola advanced to attack Wright's brigade, as well as sharpshooters sent by General Robert Rhodes. Yule worried that the entire Union army might come through the gap and crush his isolated corps, so he ordered General Robert Rhodes to deploy his division, as well as Lieutenant Thomas Carter's artillery battalion, into line. But the Confederate skirmish line held their own until finally outflanked and driven back by the Excelsiors. A few dozen men were captured during the retreat. Wright's brigade, supported by Carter's batteries, slowed the advance of the Union infantry, and French was in no rush to bring on a general engagement. After a few hours of skirmishing, the Confederates fell back closer to Front Royal, but French did not press the attack. Ewell now figured that to remain in the area, let alone to try to force passage to Manassas or Chester Gap, was foolhardy. So instead, he ordered Early's division, still near Winchester, to head southward to New Market, Virginia. Rhodes and Johnson would move on a parallel course from Front Royal down to the Luray Valley. 
Early's division would march east to rejoin the Corps, and they'd all cross the Blue Ridge at Thornton Gap, just east of Luray, Virginia. And with that, the Gettysburg Campaign was effectively over. Ewell's Corps would reach the rest of the Army at Culpeper several days later. By the end of July, the Army of Northern Virginia occupied essentially the same ground that it had at the beginning of June when the campaign began. Not long after, the Army of the Potomac would similarly take up a position on the Rappahannock River where it had been nearly two months prior. The final phase of the campaign was tense and exhausting. As Private L.T. Dickinson of the 1st Maryland Confederate Cavalry said, quote, It was one continuous fight, and even after that, for we had skirmishes every day. Unquote. Nevertheless, it seems odd that a truly decisive military operation, the way Gettysburg is usually portrayed, you know, the turning point of the war, that it would end in a relatively listless way. The Battle of Gettysburg was not the setup for the great final battle of the war. It was simply the climax of a month and a half long campaign. At least in the short term, the battle's only significance was the high number of troops engaged, and the extraordinarily high number of casualties. From the Battle of Brandy Station to the Battle of Manassas Gap, both armies lost somewhere between 60 and 65,000 men combined. Casualties were nearly equal on both sides, though the Confederates lost a greater percentage of their total force. About half of that number were soldiers wounded in action, many of whom would not survive or were permanently maimed and would not return to the ranks. The total number of dead is hard to know for sure, but somewhere between five and 10,000 soldiers died as a result of combat or infection from wounds. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today. I still have much more to say about the Gettysburg Campaign, believe it or not, but I'll save that for another episode. The next episode will serve as a kind of epilogue to everything that I've talked about thus far, and I have a few more bonus episodes planned out where I'll go into detail about what happened to some of the major players involved with Gettysburg after July 1863. I also really wanted to delve into why Gettysburg, more than any other battle of the American Civil War, came to resonate with the general public in the years after. Topics I'll touch on will include the town of Gettysburg in the aftermath of the battle, the dedication of the National Cemetery and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address later that year, the investigations made by the Joint Congressional Committee for the Conduct of the War held the next spring, the soldier reunions held in Gettysburg in the post-war years, the creation of the Gettysburg National Military Park, the Civil War Centennial in 1963, and how our view of Gettysburg and the Civil War writ large has been shaped by popular culture. So until next time, thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. Soul goes marching on.